Hello, I'm Daniel. This is my podcast, Sharpening the Mind. I am a meditation teacher and also a labor activist in Kansas City, Missouri. I teach classes in meditation and Buddhism at the Rime Buddhist Center, as well as a few other places. Thank you for listening and have a great day. Hello, this talk is called The Buddha and the Truth About Suffering. The Buddha and the Truth About Suffering. You see, the man we call the Buddha, his name, his birth name was Siddhartha Gautama. And he said that he only taught the truth about suffering and the way out of suffering. That is what he said he taught. Um, I'm not sure he was trying to start a religion as we understand it, but rather just to show people a better way to live. You see, his childhood, as the story gets told, uh, was different from most. He was born in a very wealthy family, and his father was kind of a noble lord. Some people say his father was a king, and I don't know that that exactly matches, but his father was a very important person who people listen to. And his father was told by a fortune teller that his son would either grow up to be a great king or a great spiritual teacher. And that in those days in ancient India, that was a thing people would do sometimes is go to a fortune teller when their child's born and just ask them, Hey, what's going to happen? And then the fortune teller would do well, whatever thing they do, uh, throw rocks on the ground or gaze into a flame or whatever they did. And, or look at the star charts or whatever they did to try to predict the future. Now, his father wanted him to be a great king, of course. So as a child, he was exposed to all the great things in life. His father had the idea that um, if he wants anything, if he doesn't have all his desires met, he may seek spiritual truths and he may leave and try to be the great spiritual teacher and since his father wants him to be the great king, he doesn't want his son to see anything missing in life at all. Okay. So because of this, little Siddhartha had the best toys and the best food. All his needs were met all the time. He was what we think of as a spoiled child. And when he was old enough, he had access to the best um, women of entertainment as well. No part of his life was ever difficult, and he always had the things he wanted right away. But the truth is, he became curious about the world outside the palace anyway. He realized he was aware his life was sheltered, he wasn't stupid, and he thought there might be something more out there. So one night, he sneaked out with a servant and went to a village near the palace, near his father's palace. And he encountered what is called the four sights. These were the things that he had not encountered in his life. And they really shocked him. And they just sort of shifted his whole world. I think sometimes in life we have revelations like that. Where something will happen and like our whole worldview has to change. Because it's so outside of our experience. That is what happened to him. So he saw... He saw an old man, and the servant told him everyone gets old. 
and he saw a sick man, which we think now was probably a leper, but the old texts don't say that, but we think it was probably a leper. Historians think that. And the servant told him that everyone suffers from some illnesses. And he saw a dead body, and the servant told him that sooner or later everyone dies. No one can escape these things. So what we're told in the story is that Siddhartha did not know about old age, sickness, and death. Now, our common sense, I think, stands up to that and says, well, I mean, come on, can a kid really not know about illness? At the very least about illness, right? Maybe you can hide all the old people from them. But at the very least, everybody gets, I mean, I don't think they could have shielded him from illness completely. But that said, the incredible illness of leprosy, they probably could, right? And they could hide cancer from him, right? So we can think in that way. And then, But then we think, like, did he not see bugs die or anything, right? He probably saw some death. But also, he could have seen animals die and not connected it to himself easily. Um, I think we do that, actually. Sometimes we all know about the reality of death, but sometimes we, we don't think of it all the time as something that will happen to us, right? It's still even, sometimes it's still even a shock when a really old person dies. So that's the thing about that. But then Siddhartha saw one more thing. He saw some spiritual people. These people were, were what we call wander, wandering ascetics. Wandering ascetics. And the servant explained to him, and I'm going to use the servant's explanation to explain it to you. These were men and yes, everyone the Buddha saw was a man. Um, I may at some point do a talk on sexism in ancient Buddhism and sexism in modern Buddhism. Or maybe I won't. Um, but I'm not going to touch on that here. Except to say, yes, it's noticeable in this story that every single person the Buddha sees, the pre-Buddha, the one who will be Buddha, sees as a man. That is noticeable, and it is jumping out at me right now, and it's probably jumping out at you right now. He saw a sick man, a dead man, an old man, and spiritual men. Where are the women at, right? So anyway. Um, I'll probably comment on that some other time, but not right now. The servant explained to him that these were men who had given up worldly life to just be spiritual mystics all the time. They spent their days meditating and engaging in different spiritual practices. Their purpose was to transcend the ordinary world, to leave behind the world of suffering and find spiritual truths. I This immediately makes me think of... Um, God, I don't know what the right term is because I think it's not Hare Krishnas. But um, I'm going to call them Krishna monks. These, these people who they wear brightly colored robes and they sit and play music. And I'm telling you about them because I was at a reggae festival of all places and outdoor reggae festival. And when I was on my way to the car, I saw these, my family and I saw these, this group of people, these Krishna monks who were just sitting there playing their instruments and they are singing hymns of praise to the God Krishna and they actually gave us a business card 
that says, hey, we have celebrations every week um, because they have a temple here. But I'm telling you all that to tell you, like, these are people who have given up worldly life and they're they're not eating meat and they're celibate and they just all live together in this temple and they just wake up and praise Krishna all day and that, and they meditate and that's what they do. And that's really all they do. And because they think that's a better way to live life. So when I hear that the Buddha saw these people who have given up everything to just pursue spiritual pursuits, I guess I think of that, which um, obviously the Buddha didn't see Krishna monks, but he's, he may have seen something sort of, sort of like these, these people who, man, they seem totally happy. And I, and I know from my knowledge that they've given up many of the things I enjoy, but they still seem really happy and they're singing praises and dancing and meditating. And, and I, I sort of wonder if that was the kind of person the Buddha saw. Siddhartha saw. So anyway, he saw those three things and then he saw those people living the spiritual life and he just decided, he just had that sudden inspiration that he wanted to live a spiritual life. He wanted to give up all his worldly power and wealth and pleasure and go live a spiritual life like those people. So he just left the palace and went to live in the forest and seek spiritual truths because he knew that was where those people lived and he thought he could learn something. Um, it's hard to even imagine to have that level of comfort that he had and to just give it up. Um, even harder in the ancient world where comfort is a little more difficult to come by, I think, than it is in the modern world, you know? Um, that is, if I leave behind my house with air conditioning, I'll probably find another place with air conditioning at some point, right? They didn't even have that kind of comfort. Um, so he had everything and he gave it up. That's That's the message. He had everything, but he was so moved by seeing the reality of old age, sickness, and death. He saw those things and they horrified him utterly. Utterly horrified him. And part of that is, of course, because he had never been exposed to them or not really exposed to them anyway. So an aspect of that is he was totally unprepared. And this reality, the reality of horror just suddenly was revealed all at once. All at once, which is not how most of us live. Most of us, we sort of slowly get that message that, oh, we're going to get sick. Oh, we're going to get old. Oh, we're going to die. We slowly get that message. It doesn't just come just get hidden from us for he's an adult for 30 years and then get dropped on us, right? We don't have that experience. And that's why he was so inspired. So he went to look for spiritual truths and he found them. He looked for six years. It's, it's said he looked for six years. He trained with other spiritual teachers and he just practiced by himself and he tried meditating all day every day and he tried not eating really just eating rice and he tried um not cleaning himself he tried all sorts of things to just try to have a spiritual breakthrough okay so at one point he just says okay well i'm just going to sit under this tree and i'm going to sit here until i realize enlightenment until i realize something fundamental about human life something fundamental. And it's said that he sat under this tree, which we call the Bodhi tree or the tree of enlightenment. He sat under it for a very long time. 
And it said he sat there long enough that he saw um, hallucinations. He saw this, there's this villain in the story called Mara, which is like a devil figure. But um, most most scholars suggest that that's not this is not a literal figure but rather it's an aspect of his own personality that is communicating with him and and so anyway he sees this mara this devil figure and what the devil figure does is try to put scary monsters out there and try to put like also on the other hand beautiful dancing girls like things to distract him from his journey and um, like I said, it's I take it as a hallucination and not as a literal being that's there. But um, some people would take it as a literal being that's there. And it's not good or bad. It makes no difference. But the point is that he's sitting long enough that he's seeing things. And he just sits, he powers through that. He does what we call touching the earth. And if you ever see a statue of the Buddha where he's got one hand in his lap and the other hand is touching the ground... That's supposed to represent the moment of enlightenment. That is, he touches the ground and he grounds himself. And then he doesn't see these hallucinations anymore. He just sees the truth about life. So I'm going to tell you now what he saw under that tree. Okay. He sat there for a while and he had these realizations that just came to him about human life and the world and our place in it. He discovered, I say discovered instead of created, he discovered what we call the Four Noble Truths. The Four Noble Truths are a central teaching in Buddhism. And it was the first thing, or maybe one of the first things, that the Buddha tried to teach anyone. Okay, And this is the moment that Siddhartha Gautama becomes the Buddha. The Buddha means the awakened one. And that was the title he carried. And some people call him Shakyamuni Buddha. And that just means the Buddha from the Shakya clan, which was the name of his family, the Shakya clan, Shakyamuni Buddha. So the Four Noble Truths are a central teaching in Buddhism. They are, number one, there is suffering. Number two, the cause of suffering is attachment. Number three, there is a way out of suffering. And number four, the way out is the Noble Eightfold Path. Now, this is a fundamental teaching of Buddhism that I don't like very much. When I sit around talking about Buddhism with my friends, like you do, I like to focus on Buddhism and more positive ways on the cultivation of the six perfections or as a series of practices designed to help us experience oneness or dissolve our delusions or make better choices or achieve our goals, right? I don't usually think of it as a way out of suffering, but that's how the Buddha thought of it. Buddhism is a mystical journey to dwell in our true selves, but it really all started with this teaching of the Four Noble Truths. And one quick thing, um, this word we call suffering, the word is dukkha, and it, what it means is off kilter. It means things aren't quite right. And that word has gotten translated as suffering, and I'm going to be using the word suffering here. But I think that if you think of, you know, when I when I hear the word suffering, I think of things like being on fire. And that's not what we're talking about. We're not talking about being on fire or 
having a broken leg where the bone is sticking out of your leg or whatever other horrifying thing. I think of though, when I hear the word suffering, I think of really horrifying things. And that's not what we're talking about. We're talking about off kilter. Things are just a little bit off and that's stealing our joy. Okay. So the Buddha is sometimes called the Supreme Physician because that's what he's doing here. He's acting like a doctor. He's diagnosing a problem, suffering. He's explaining the cause of the problem, attachment. He's telling us there's a treatment, a way out, and then describing the treatment, telling us what the treatment is, the Eightfold Path. It sounds pretty good, but why don't I like it? People struggle to understand this teaching, I think. People ask all sorts of questions about it when you say life is suffering. We all experience things like not getting what we want or worrying we'll lose what we have. We all get stubbed toes, right? We all get sick. We all grow old. We all lose the people we love. That is why we say life is suffering. But to some, that sounds really negative. I can remember um, goth kids from my high school, the kids who were mad when movies had happy endings, the ones who went, on and on talking about how miserable their lives were. And honestly, I wasn't that different from that. But sometimes that's what I think of when I think of the first noble truth. I think of angst-ridden teenagers in all black who say life is pain. And also, someone could say, life isn't suffering. Sure, there are bad parts, but I ate a burrito yesterday and I had sex this morning. There's plenty of good things going on. And that's true. There are awful things in life, and there are reasons to celebrate, too. But you see, the cause of suffering is attachment. So that burrito will be gone soon. That sex will be over, hopefully not as fast as a burrito. We want things we don't have, and when we do have them, we want them to last forever, but nothing ever does. Nothing. Happiness is one delicious cup of coffee, and we drink it, and it feels good, and then it's gone. then it's gone. And we sometimes have this idea in our heads that we can line up our lives to have one happy experience after another. And then we're disappointed when that doesn't work out. We're disappointed when that doesn't work out. But, and it's that, that disappointment that we're really talking about here. I wish things were different than they are. And I'm upset. They're not, I am upset that life is not arranging itself in the way to maximize my joy. As though that's a reasonable expectation of life. And the third noble truth is there's a way out of suffering. And that is where I can say, see, Buddhism isn't negative. It's a prescription. The Buddha didn't save us. He taught us how to save ourselves. There's a way out. And he's an ordinary human being like us. So we can do what he did. That's an important thing about Buddhism is that the Buddha, Siddhartha Gautama, was a man. He was a regular person like you and me, although he had certain advantages we don't have. He also, we have advantages he didn't have. He didn't have the internet, right? He couldn't Google things. He didn't have modern medicine either. So that's the thing. Because he was a person and he talked about fundamental parts of the human condition, we can attain enlightenment too. We can come to have the same kinds of understandings he did. So the way out is the Eightfold Path. Let's talk about that now. 
If we can cultivate and strengthen these virtues, we can dwell in enlightenment. So what are they? Sometimes people use the word right, and sometimes people use words like wise or correct. I'm going to use the word wise. Okay, so there's eight of these. Wise understanding, wise thought, wise speech, wise action, wise livelihood, wise effort, wise mindfulness, wise concentration. So, um, and again, that often people use the word right, so they would say right understanding, etc. I think to, in my mind, right implies right and wrong, and so I don't want to use that term because that's not what it's about. But it's just that, and again, they are, I'm just going to read what they are. Understanding, thought, speech, action, livelihood, effort, mindfulness, and concentration. And we can spend our lives trying to know how to cultivate these. This is how we save ourselves. This is the Buddha's path. I'm going to unpack the Noble Eightfold Path a little bit here. Uh, so understanding is understanding how the world works and our place in it. Understanding what it means to be Buddhist or what it means to be a spiritual person and really trying to embody that or thinking about how to embody that maybe. Thought is cultivating our ability to control our minds, to think about the things we want to, and to stop thinking about the things we don't want to. It's learning how to direct our attention because we can learn how to do that. Speech is use only kind words and don't tell lies. Um, gossip is bad. Dishonesty is bad. And look at me using the word bad, right? But the point is that gossip and dishonesty and things like that get in our way. They get in our way. They increase drama. They create disharmony with the world around us. And that's what we're talking about here. This isn't about like a list of commandments, but rather this is about a list of things that get in our way and um, attack our harmony. Okay. Okay. So next is action. Be kind to others. Don't harm people and animals. And again, that's about harmony with the world around you, right? And next is livelihood. Work on learning how to do things that help the world instead of things that cause harm. So uh, the Buddha gave the example that you shouldn't sell slaves. And um, gosh, that seems like common sense. Of course, selling slaves is not a good way to make a living, right? But at the same time, like, you don't find a lot of messages like that in the ancient world. But so that was an example the Buddha had for that. So it's just in your, where you spend most of your time, which for most of us is our career, try not to hurt other people there. Try not to hurt other people there. So I think of, uh, and I hope this isn't too dated of an example, but I think of um, Pretty Woman at the beginning Richard Gere is a corporate raider and he takes apart people's companies and ruins their lives. But then at the end, he figures out a way to do that more compassionately and help, help people instead. And that's what I think of. He had wrong livelihood at the beginning and he got a better livelihood at the end when he realized he could use this to help people rather than just take them, take apart their lives. Effort. Effort. Uh, this means always trying your best. This is what keeps us motivated on the path. 
if we don't put great effort into it, we probably won't get very far. And sometimes people call this diligence or assertiveness. It's just sticking with it. It is practicing kindness when you don't feel like it. And it is meditating when you don't feel like it too, which is going to be a lot of the time. That's why it had to be included in the path because it's easy to make excuses and not do the things we know we need to do. That's the truth about human beings. We are really good at making excuses and taking shortcuts. And we want to learn how to not do that. Mindfulness. This is pay attention to the world around you. Don't miss important things that are going on because of distraction. Be here now. Be present and not somewhere else all the time. And we do meditation practices to train in that. And then lastly is right concentration. And that's learn how to meditate and put it into practice. Learn how to meditate and put it into practice. Um, generally, we want to learn two things. One is how to focus and how to see clearly. Well, one is how to focus and the other is how to see clearly. Wow. One is how to focus and pay attention and direct our minds to where we want them to go rather than just wherever they go. You know what I'm talking about. If you've ever been trying to sleep and you can't stop thinking about something that you don't even need to think about, that's what we're talking about here. We want to learn how to direct our attention so that we can sleep better at night, for example, right? But then the other is clarity, just seeing the world as it really is rather than being confused all the time, rather than um, shaping our perception with our expectations, because we do that. So we want to really learn how to see the world clearly, and that is what it's all about. So um, that is what it's all about. Sort of, we want to learn how to see things clearly, and we want to sort of create an environment in our lives where we are able to do that. And that is what some of some of these are about, is just creating the life we need to cultivate these things we need to cultivate. So sometimes the Eightfold Path is divided into virtue meditation and insight. And I want to go over that with you real quick. So virtue, um, wise speech, wise action, wise livelihood. Those are about being a good person. And that helps us have harmony in our lives and to feel good about ourselves too. And then second is the meditation section. And that's effort, mindfulness, and concentration. So those three are together. Effort, mindfulness, and concentration. That's about learning how to meditate and cultivating these mind states cultivating these mind states that help us. And then last is the wisdom section, sometimes called the insight section. And that's understanding and thought. And that is just, we need to reflect on the world and our place in it. And our meditation is going to help us do that. So we have an accurate perception of the world and our place in it. So that's what it's all about. So thank you for taking the time to listen to me today and have a good day. Thank you for listening and have a good day.